as the kids make their way downstairs to learn from the Bible and we do the same. If you'd like, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll be in Mark chapter 2, which Sharon just read for us, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 837 of your uh, Blue Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. And let me ask God to help us, because we're going to try to do something impossible. Uh, Lord, we, we do ask that you would do the impossible and awaken any hearts in the room that are dead. Lord, Paul says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Not kind of dead, we were dead. And you, you have to walk by us and as you did with Lazarus, you have to say, rise. And I pray now through the preaching of your word, you would be pleased to awaken hearts in this room. And Lord, we also ask that you would be pleased to work on the hearts in this room, that you would soften us, you would open us, and you would fill us with your spirit that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I have a friend who, when when he observes people dealing with the same problem over and over again, often in their personal lives, um, I have a friend who is fond of saying, that's not about what it's about. Have you ever said that? I, I think what he means by this, and I actually think it's really insightful, is often when we're dealing with problems in our lives, especially ones that seem intractable, they're, they're actually not about what they seem like they're about. In other words, beneath the symptom problem we're dealing with that we can see that's vivid, that's immediate, beneath the symptom lies a much deeper root. And this friend of mine is always asking about the bigger problem. What's the big one? What's the root? I wonder what you think is your biggest problem. What do you think is our biggest problem today as a people, in our society, in our world? I mean, when you look around and you see all the things that can and do go wrong and just repeat themselves in every generation and in every family and every society, what do you think the problem is? What do you think is our biggest problem today? You know, how you answer that question determines so much else about you. What you think is your biggest problem or our biggest problem, it can shape your very career decision, especially in a town like this. People come to solve problems, big ones. It, it can shape how you answer this question, how you use your money, how you use your time, how you speak to your children, how you speak to your neighbors. So what is your, what, what is our biggest problem? We're studying the gospel of Mark this fall. And, and last week we considered the inauguration or the kickoff of Jesus' public ministry. He comes into Galilee, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, preaching. He preaches the gospel of God, the good news of the arrival of God's reign in 
Jesus. Since then, through the rest of chapter one, he's been on something of a tour of Galilee. And he's been teaching with incredible authority. But as he's been going around this area of northern Israel, people are bringing to him all their problems. I mean, chapter one is filled with problems. People bring sickness, they bring uncleanness, they bring a fever, they bring demon possession. It's like people are learning. You want to get your problems close to this man's power. And, and he's amazing people. He's healing sicknesses. He is exercising demons. And he's pronouncing that which is unclean, clean. And we are, when we arrive in our passage today, beginning at chapter 2, Jesus is presented with another person that represents a problem. And this person's problem is particularly acute. The, the man is paralyzed. He can't walk. Now, this, is, this would be really hard at any time, but just imagine it in the first century. There's not like a government agency to help people like this. This man can't walk. And so as, as we watch this scene, what, what we're all going to wonder is, is how does Jesus attend to this man's problem? And here, in this particular moment, for the first time, Jesus surprises us. He shocks us, not because he can heal, but because he actually digs to a deeper root. And you'll see this in a moment. But the main point of our passage is the answer to the question, what is your, what is our biggest problem? And so I want to make our way through this event where Jesus is confronted with the problem. And I want to help us see how he identifies the root of it. I want to reflect then on why that root, why that root problem is so pernicious and poisonous. And then I want to ask about the balm or what happens when you put your biggest problem in front of the power of Jesus. So the root, the poison, and the balm. So first, what's the root of our problems? The event that's in, recorded here in Mark 2 is captured with vivid detail. And it's filled with surprises and twists. Now the detail is Mark's way of trying to pull his readers in. He wants us in the crowded living room as Jesus teaches. So he opens, verse one, chapter two. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together. Now, 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 notice the details now. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now, since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, as I said, has been on a tour of Galilee. And, and people have been amazed by his teaching, his healings, his exorcisms, and his fame and his following are skyrocketing. Now in chapter two, he's returned to Capernaum where he's previously been. He's probably in the home. Notice it says Jesus was at home. He's probably in the home of Simon Peter's mother who previously in chapter one, he healed of a fever. And when he was there before, some days before it says, we read, this is chapter one, verse 33 through 34, that the whole city had gathered together at the door. Notice the detail about the door again. And he healed many who were sick and demon-possessed. 
So before, there was a crowd, but you, you could still get up to the door so you could maybe look in and hear them and think, maybe if I just yell out, Jesus, I think, I'm, I, think I have a demon. Maybe he, would, maybe he would help. But this time, we're told, the crowd has grown so large, you, you can't even get up to the door. You can't, you can't even pick up a word, let alone catch a little bit of his power to get healed. Now, here's where the surprises begin. Four men, undeterred by this crowd, they carry their friend, who's paralyzed on a mat, up the staircase that would have been built alongside one of these ancient homes. They carry him up the staircase out onto the roof. So we're inside. So at first we hear a couple thuds and then scratching. And then specks of dirt start to fall. We look up. And, and more clunks of roof fall down, some maybe on Jesus, some on us. And suddenly a small light appears and a hole grows a little bigger. And suddenly we see not one, not two, not three, but four heads. We see the silhouette of four heads looking down against the bright Galilean sky. Someone has ripped a hole in Simon Peter's mother's roof. And then... They, they actually, into a room where there's really no standing room even left, they start to lower this huge mat with this paralyzed man on it down so that it's almost put in the lap of Jesus and everyone has to push back and there this poor guy is. Helpless, laid out on a mat with everybody looking at him and we're all, we, the crowd, the, the scribes, the disciples, we all wonder with bated breath, what is Jesus going to do? What is he going to say? Now, we think to ourselves, well, we know exactly what's going to happen. Jesus has been on a tour de force of healing. These people didn't break the roof open to hear him teach. Like, they want to get this guy healed. And so we step back and we wait to see the miracle. Have you ever seen a miracle like this? I haven't. I would be on tiptoe. He's gonna heal this guy. This is why he came. And here's where the surprise is, they, they only continue. Jesus looks at a man whose physical problems could not be more obvious. The man is a parable of his own brokenness. He can't get up. And Jesus looks at him and says something none of us expect. He doesn't even comment on his physical condition. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And maybe he goes back to teaching. The guy's still laying there. I mean, the friends are like, would you pull him up? So I, I want you to just pause. There's a shock here. Now, now one of the, the shocks is the fact that Jesus is claiming he can forgive sins, which is really the point we're gonna get to. And that's what really bothers the scribes. But before that, I want you to just try to feel the shock for this man. I mean, he... He has such an aching, obvious physical need. Do you not think at the very least he would feel disappointed? Wouldn't you? I mean, if you put, when you put your most acute, pressing, obvious problems before Jesus and he were to say, yeah, I know your relationships are all a mess. You can't get a job. You have cancer. I want you to know, child, your sins are forgiven. And you're like, I... I just, I have a bigger problem than that. I mean, you can, you, you, we wouldn't fault the man if he said maybe, Jesus, I just, could I just have a word? I mean, I, I'm, 
I'm appreciated the, the religious, spiritual stuff you're talking about, but, but that's not my biggest problem. And you can imagine Jesus responding and saying, yes, it is. You have no bigger problem than your sin. Notice he says your sin. He doesn't say sin like he's under someone else's attack, the world's meanness. He says your sins. And so here, herein lies the first lesson we have to notice. Jesus, Jesus is saying that our biggest problem is often not what we think. And that our biggest problem is in fact our sin. Now, don't misunderstand this. Jesus goes on to heal the man's body. Jesus cares about all the other problems. His ministry ultimately is about nothing less than bringing about a new creation and guaranteeing the resurrection of the body, the end of paralysis for all his people. He cares about all that. He just knows that our biggest problem is much deeper than that. And to not deal with the problem of sin would mean that all the other problems we try to solve will ultimately be foiled. This problem, left unfixed, foils all the other problems you're trying to fix. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Now let's just step back for a second and see where this comes from in the larger Bible. Remember Genesis one through three. Recall the events that created the fall. We looked at this in the spring. There's a curse pronounced in Genesis 3 that affects everything, relationships, vocations, creation. It brings corruption and death. But it's preceded by sin. In other words, Adam and Eve don't sin because the world is really tough and hard to live in. The world is tough and hard to live in because Adam and Eve have sinned. The brokenness of the world is a result it follows after their sins. Sin is the problem before all other problems. Not even the problem of death outranks sin. You think, well, well, death is worse than sin. Paul says, through sin, death came into the world. Death is sin's baby. And death spread to all men because all sin. So not even death is a bigger problem than the fact that you or I or we have unforgiven sin. Now think also of Jesus' ministry. What does Jesus' ministry ultimately aim at? Where does it culminate? It culminates in the cross, right? Have you ever wondered? I mean, because Jesus has this immense power, why didn't he just heal all our sicknesses, drive out all our demons, and calm all the storms? He could have done that. And because he has such immense wisdom... Why didn't he just offer us the perfect teaching that would finally dispel all ignorance, answer all scientific questions, give us the cure for all diseases, and perfect all political policy? Why didn't he just give us that? He has the answer to all these things. He has the power to do all these things. Why doesn't he do it? He doesn't do it because beneath all the problems of health, education, economics, politics, science, lies a deeper root. It's the problem of sin. And to fix these other things without attending to sin would be like putting a coat of paint on rotting wood. So the first point our passage makes, therefore, is that our biggest problem is sin. Now, 
before we say more about why this is, like why is sin so poisonous and pernicious, I wanna pause and I wanna put a question to our church. So this is for the Falls Church Anglican. How does this fact that our biggest problem is sin shape our church's ministry? We care about all the problems within this church and around us in our community. Why? Because God cares about all these problems. But are we more than another school? Are we more than another hospital? Are we more than another loan agency? Are we more than another nonprofit or government program, as good as these things are? I mean, why is it that when we build our building, we put a cross on the roof, not a bank sign, not the name of a school, not a political signia, we put a cross. Why do we do that? Because the cross isn't just a solution, it's a diagnostic. The cross says it's that bad. You're gonna die in your sins unless Christ comes and dies for you. Friends, as we go out to care for one another and care for our communities, we have to bring them the gospel that Jesus sees their deepest need. We have to attend to the need beneath the needs. We are the one institution in the world that knows what the real problem is and knows the solution. We can never leave off preaching this message. You're paralyzed, your school's going bad, you don't have enough food, relationships are messed up, whatever, you need the forgiveness of your sins. To say that is not insensitive, it's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So let's just, let's just ask at this point, what is so bad about sin, right? I mean, it, it, it just was Adam and Eve eating an apple. I mean, what, what, is about, what is it about this root that you could actually say it's underneath all the other stuff that's gone wrong? This is our second point. We looked at the root. I want to ask now about the poison. Why is sin so bad? There is a connection in this passage between this man's physical paralysis and sin. Okay, there's a connection. Now, it doesn't, to say this, it doesn't mean that there's a direct one-to-one -one correlation between all your individual sins and all your individual suffering. There's not a direct relationship. Sometimes there is, you know, if you rob a bank and you're doing time in jail and you're like, this is suffering in jail, that's because of your sin. But sometimes it's like you break your leg playing soccer and you go home, that must be because I said a swear word. I don't know, maybe it wasn't. So, so let me show you, Jesus doesn't want us to make too tight of a link here. He says in John 9, he's about to heal a guy who's blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they want to know, what, what sin caused the blindness? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents that he's blind, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there's not, don't look for a direct connection, always, but what I want to point out is there is always a general connection. There's always a connection between the fact of sin and the fact of pain and suffering and sorrow. To see this, let's just drop back to Genesis 3 again. Recall that in Genesis 3, sin comes before the fall. I want you to notice, however, a little more about the sequence of ramifications here. So there's a curse that's meted out 
in Genesis 3 that is universal in scope. It touches relationships between people and people, people and their vocation, people and creation, and finally death comes in as the final blow. This is Genesis 3, I think 14 or 15 through 19. Now, Paul comes along in Romans 8. This is a lot of Bible, just follow me. This is so important. Paul comes along in Romans 8, and he he adds some color to this, and he speaks of creation, by which Paul means the entire material world, our planet to your bodies. He speaks of creation as being, quote, subjected to futility, it's Romans 8, verse 20, and also in bondage to corruption, it's Romans 8, verse 21. This is Paul referring back to the curse. Paul is saying the entire material world, it's the mortality of it, it's brokenness, storms, weather, bodies breaking down, cancer. This is all a ramification of sin. A lot of times people will say, well, well, sin causes certain things, but when something bad happens in the world, that's just random chance. Not according to the Bible. If something goes wrong in a world God created good, you gotta ask why? Because God's a bad creator? No. Every problem is connected to the problem of sin. And we can dig a little bit deeper here and we need to see that, this is interesting, that sin actually begins as a spiritual problem that affects the physical world. Let me show you this. So, So Adam and Eve, they have the uh, great honor of being the first sinners, right? We would have been if we were created first. Um, And Adam and Eve, their sin is taking an apple. Now, was there sin? I I mean, the first sin, the first moment, was it a physical act? It wasn't. Before Adam and Eve moved a single finger towards the tree, they moved their hearts. And their heart made a movement that perhaps has been the biggest movement in the history of the world. We continue to make it. But their hearts made a move where they turned away from God and they effectively said to the rest of creation, don't worry, we know better. And in doing this, it was akin to changing the biblical mantra, God, you are my God, to God, I am your God, follow me, Yahweh, and I will make you in my image. So Adam hit God, not with his fist, he hit him with his heart. So before there was spousal abuse or or sibling abuse or any abuse in the created order, there was God abuse. And this is a spiritual reality that is unbelievably catastrophic. So the heart of sin is not only in the disrespecting, disliking, and disobeying of God, which we all continue to do, it's also in the fact that sin puts the created world, the cosmos, out of alignment. Human beings were created to be God's image bearers, so through us, we're to carry the character and the goodness of God to the world and bring about its, its latent potential and build it into God's temple and kingdom. So when we break, it breaks. And what Adam and Eve did is akin to treason and treachery, and it opened a conduit through which the poison of sin could contaminate everything. And and the ramifications of this have been catastrophic. And they splinter in three directions. Let me just highlight them briefly. First, the ramifications are relational. 
And and before the relational between us, the relational between us and God, sin separates humankind from their most fundamental relationships. From here on out, we are orphaned. We are pushed out east of Eden away from God's presence. It's relational. Second, it's existential. By the word existential, I just mean it involves our experience of our existence. There's all types of ways sin messes us up. The Bible uses language like the stain of sin or its sickness, meaning we feel unwell, unclean. We want to be washed from the inside out, as David says in Psalm 51. Wash me, Lord. The Bible will talk about sin also using an image from archery as missing the mark like always being off aim. Our desires, our passions, what we live for, it's never quite what we should be living for. So we turn aside, every one of us, like stray sheep. We lose our way. We follow our own way. Our hearts are darkened and hard. Later in Mark, Jesus will call people who can see blind. So it affects our existence. Finally, it affects us legally. The Bible uses terms like debt, Debt is a legal term. It says debt is experienced by us like a big burden on our backs. And it says we feel it like guilt. So this captures the fact that in sin we stand before a holy God as a people condemned. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? I think this is why Jesus is bringing it up. Now, of course we don't talk about sin. A lot of churches don't talk about sin, right? Um, They love healing the paralytic. They don't like the whole sin thing so much. And, and, you know, a theory arose in the past few centuries that the, the less humanity believed in God, the less guilty they would feel about sin. And there's obvious reasons for this. I mean, if, if you don't have God, why would you feel guilty about not living up to God's standards? But interestingly, this is not at all what's happened. People seem to be struggling with this sense of guilt as much, if not more than ever. In an essay I've referenced before titled The Strange Persistence of Guilt, Google it, it's worth reading. Um, A historian suggests that for the modern person, the range of possible reasons for feeling guilty only grows. So I quote, I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap, maybe should take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. Indeed, when any one of us reflects on the brute fact of our being alive and taking up space on this planet, We may be led to feel guilty about the very fact of our existence. You know, sometimes I feel like we're, we're, I mean, as a culture, we're combing through history and we're combing through everyone's Twitter feed, finding all the dirt and all the sin we can. And then we're playing it out on a great digital screen that spans from horizon to horizon. We're playing out all the stuff that everyone's done wrong on constant loop. And we're looking around and saying, I dare you, go stand out there and see if you can be found worthy before this all-seeing eye. Do you understand how interesting this is? We've given up God to just create our own idea of God. I mean, why are people bent out of shape? about not doing all these good works. 
Who's to tell you you have to help with deforestation? Why do you have to care about the climate? Why should you care about justice? Friends, why do these things continue to bother us? I'll tell you why they do. Because we can stop believing in God in our minds, but we cannot stop being made in the image of God in our hearts. And our hearts have an imprint. They're hardwired to feel and want to be, want to be accepted by the righteous and holy God. And we are never okay unless we are found worthy before our righteous Father. And ironically, so tragically, in losing God, we not only didn't lose our problem of guilt and sin, we ended up losing our only means of finding atonement. There is only one way to be found righteous. And friend, let me tell you, if you're, if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're not a Christian, if you're here with a friend, I wanna tell you something that the world simply doesn't understand. You are made in the image of God. You have fallen into sin and your heart longs to have your sin expiated. You truly want to be found clean and holy. It's deep within you. So this, this has to bring us to our final point. Why is Jesus bringing this up? Notice he doesn't just say paralytic. On top of not being able to walk, you're also a sinner. That's not what he says. He brings in the all-important Christian word that changes everything. Forgiveness. So this takes us to our final point. We looked at the root. We tasted the poison and now we're gonna ask about the balm. This scene is about healing, don't mistake it. Jesus loves this man. I think that's why he calls him child in verse five. He doesn't use that word often with people. It's the word technon, it, you could render it son. There's something, maybe, maybe the man's young but there's something in it that's very tender. He says child, son. I mean you just gotta feel it, son, son. It's gonna be okay. Now, the, the scribes know this is a huge no-no. They actually charge Jesus with blasphemy in this passage, which, by the way, is the offense that gets him crucified. A little foreshadowing going on in here in Mark. Blasphemy, why? Because only God can forgive sins. So Jesus here is also making a point about his identity. Remember I told you two weeks ago when Isaiah says about John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, that word Lord, back in Mark chapter one, verse three, that word Lord is Yahweh, in the Old Testament, this is Yahweh, this is God. And so Jesus can forgive sin because Jesus is God. So again in chapter two, Mark is saying, this is God. And what, now why, why can't like other people forgive each other's sins? I mean, we, we forgive one another. Why can only God do this though? I mean, you see it there. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus doesn't challenge that logic. He just fits himself into it. Why can only God forgive sins? Well, for one, God alone is judge. God has absolute authority. God does not answer to our discomfort with the idea of authority. He has complete authority, so he can pronounce forgiveness. God also is all-knowing. He's the only one who sees everything, so he can perfectly adjudicate between our mixed motives. I think that's one reason in this passage, you have these men reasoning in their hearts, and then it says in verse six, 
that Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in his spirit, you see that there? Jesus knows what people are thinking before they talk. So he, he understands the complexity of how sin comes about perfectly. So, so Jesus, God can forgive sin because he's the perfect judge. He's all wise to adjudicate. However, these two facts alone do not necessitate that God would forgive sin. Recognize it, sure. Judge it, absolutely, in perfect goodness. It is perfectly righteous for the perfectly holy God to look at sin and judge it with his wrath. It's what justice looks like when it meets sin. So what's up with the forgiveness? And this is where we come to the really tight part of the passage where we realize that in Jesus, God is actually surprising us with a whole new vista of his heart. You see, to forgive, to be able to forgive, not only does Jesus need the authority and the wisdom, if he's gonna forgive, it means there's also something inside of him called mercy. Jesus is moved with compassion like the father of the prodigal son when he sees this man. It's who he is. It pours forth from him. And you see, this is a new part of God's heart for us because in order for Jesus to forgive this man, Jesus knows he's going to have to die for him. So maybe Jesus is looking at this man paralyzed and thinking in order to forgive him, I'm gonna to have to be paralyzed. I'm gonna be nailed to a cross, can't move my hands, my feet. Maybe he sees the man being lowered down and he thinks in order to forgive this guy, I'm gonna be lowered down, but from a cross. I'm gonna be laid, not on a floor, but I'm gonna be laid in a tomb. And he looks at this man and his heart burns. And he says, son, son, your sins are forgiven. And you understand what, what, what Jesus does with forgiveness. Look, if he heals you of your legs, you run off and who knows what you're gonna do, exactly what this guy does. But the act of forgiveness is entering into a relationship. It's a long-term commitment. Why? Because forgiveness is the lever that reconciles this man to God his father. Jesus is saying, my son, I want you forever. We'll work on the legs. You're gonna be alive for a long time. We'll work on the relationships. We'll work on the brokenness of Jewish and Roman culture. We'll work on that. But I need you to know before you know anything else that I would die for you and I want you forever. And until you experience that healing, until it runs all the way down, all the healing of all the brokenness of your body or your relationship simply will not cure you. This passage, it's not about the healing of the paralytic physically, although that happens. This is about the healing of the heart. This is about the healing of humankind's soul. This man walked away a son of God, and so can you, if you will just lay yourself with the nothingness you have, save your sins, before the power of the Son of God, in whose name there is forgiveness of sins. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus didn't just come to deal with our experience of pain, but he came to deal with our biggest, deepest need. And Jesus, I pray you would go for the root of every heart in this room and you would apply the sweet, tender balm of forgiveness. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.